Leviticus 17 tonight, but not for a few minutes. I want to engage our hearts and our minds for a moment. I want to start thinking about color, first of all. If we were to pick a theme color for the Bible, what color might we pick? We, we could pick green, maybe for the creation at the dawn of time in the green of the Garden of Eden, or we could pick blue for mankind living under God's beautiful sky. We could pick purple for the royalty of God, the royalty of Christ. How about white for the holiness and the, the purity of God? Or we maybe could even pick yellow for the streets of gold in the, in the coming heavenly city. Those are all options. Well, we can't pick green for the creation because creation is decaying and groaning for a future day. We can't pick blue for mankind living under God's sky. Mankind is the reason for de- the decay of creation. Since we introduced sin into the world, we can't pick purple for the royalty of God and Christ because we rejected him as our king. We said we don't want God as our king. We, we can't pick white for the holiness of God because mankind has violated God's holiness at every single turn. And we can't pick yellow for the streets of gold in the coming heavenly city because our sin has disqualified us from entering into that city. Really, the color we would have to pick to represent the Bible is red. Because from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 20, blood is flowing throughout all the Bible. In fact, blood is so prevalent in the Bible that we could put together a short theology of blood. And I'll bet you've never heard this. So we're going to do a theology of blood. The appearance of blood is not generally a good sign. Uh, Yes, blood is natural. Seeing it is not. Seeing blood generally is bad news. In fact, every ancient people saw blood as having a mystical connection to life and death. And even the color of blood, red, became really in every major culture a symbol of violence and power and guilt and punishment, particularly the idea of violence. The word for blood in both Hebrew and Greek appears 425 times in the Bible, or to put it this way, an average of more than one-third of all the chapters of the Bible. It appears in every book of the Pentateuch. It appears in 27 out of 39 Old Testament books, 13 out of 27 New Testament books, here in Leviticus alone, 87 times do we see a reference to blood. In fact, I could divide the theology of blood into three concepts, and none of them are good news. The first theological concept, blood represents mortal life and death. It represents mortal life and death. We see the phrase flesh and blood. It's used four times in the New Testament to speak of humanity in general, and it can indicate our mortality, our weakness, our inability to attain to anything spiritual or to salvation. 1 Corinthians 15.50 says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And of course, the absence of blood makes a once-living person now just a decaying corpse because life is in the blood of a person. And just the mention of blood implies and represents a risk to life. For example, 1 Chronicles 11 records the time King David was at war with the Philistines. The Philistines had captured Bethlehem, his hometown. And David lamented, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. I don't think he actually wanted that. He was just saying, wouldn't that be nice? But three loyal and somewhat crazy men under him broke through the Philistine camp, got the water, brought it to David, And he poured it on the ground. And I can imagine them kind of going, really? Seriously, you just did that? I killed nine guys to get that. Well, why did he pour it on the ground? He said in 1 Chronicles 11, 19, and it was an honorable reason, far be it from me before my God that I should do this. Should I drink the lifeblood of these men? For at the risk of their lives, they brought it. Numerous places in the Bible, the mention of blood is used as a symbol for impending death. And destruction. In Ezekiel 5.17, God warns of coming judgment against Jerusalem for a covenant treachery against the Lord. And he says, I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord, I have spoken. And so blood represents mortal life and death. 
We could also give another concept. Blood represents guilt and lawlessness. Guilt and lawlessness. In many places in Scripture, the mention of blood assigns guilt for violent crimes. Hosea 1 speaks of the blood of Jezreel. Hosea 6 speaks of a guilty city tracked with blood. Isaiah chapter 1 indicates false believers in Israel as those whose hands are full of blood. And in fact, Ezekiel 23 uses a phrase two times that we still use today. There is blood on their hands. Lawlessness is pictured in Scripture with blood. In Psalm 139, the psalmist fears men of blood. Men of blood in the Bible are those who are prone to and you are certain to see violence at their hands. But blood also serves as the indictment against the wicked, against the lawless. It witnesses against them. God told Cain, who had murdered his brother Abel in Genesis 4, verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The blood of the victim in the Bible is even said to haunt the murderer. God said to the violent Edomites through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 35, verse 6, he said, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood and blood shall pursue you. Because you did not hate bloodshed, therefore blood shall pursue you. And we get some very good advice in Proverbs 28, verse 17. If one is burdened with the blood of another, he will be a fugitive until death. Law enforcement tells countless stories of unbelieving and and even very, very selfish men and women who have committed murder. And they literally cannot get it out of their minds until they go and turn themselves in. Because the blood pursues them. And of course, the shedding of blood is the basis for the God-ordained law of the death penalty. Genesis 9, verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So blood represents mortal life and death. Blood represents guilt and lawlessness. Third piece of good news, blood represents uncleanness and contamination. We saw this even in the last few chapters we looked at in Leviticus. Uncleanness and contamination. The appearance of blood outside the body for any reason represents a shattering of your normal life. Something is going to change. The law, even in our text tonight, required that even animal blood had to be handled according to strict rules. Human blood was even more defiling. Psalm 106 condemns guilty Israelites who had engaged in human sacrifice. Psalm 106.38 says, They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood, particularly because it's human blood. Lamentations 4 pictures survivors of Jerusalem's destruction at the hands of Babylon just wandering the streets in a daze. Verses 14 and 15 says they wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. Did you catch that? Even pagan nations said, there's so much blood on you, we don't want it to be near you. As we saw last time in Leviticus 15, even the normal womanly cycle required strict purification because of uncleanness. The blood flow after childbirth required purification for as long as 80 days, we saw in Leviticus 12. Chronic bleeding of any kind left the sufferer now ostracized from fellowship with the community of faith. And we think of the woman in Luke chapter 8 who bled for for 12 years and was, was ostracized from her community because of the law. As a matter of fact, when the prophet Isaiah wanted to give a contrast of God's perfect, holy righteousness, contrasting that with humanity's self-styled, self-righteous attempts at holiness before God, he said in Isaiah 64, 6, that, quote, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, literally in Hebrew, a menstrual rag. That's not a commentary about women. It's a commentary on humanity that our so-called good works is like a bleeding before God. So generally speaking in the Bible, the, the appearance of blood is serious and it's a horrible thing. 
Blood represents mortal life and death. Blood represents guilt and lawlessness. Blood represents uncleanness and contamination. And so given the fact that blood represents mortal life and death and guilt and lawlessness and uncleanness and contamination, I I think it makes more sense to us now when we see that God spoke to Adam in the brand new Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 and said, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely, what? Die. And in that time, there's only one way to die, and that is to have your arteries and veins opened. It makes total sense that Paul affirms in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is what? Is death. And so based on the fact that blood represents your mortal life and death, blood represents your guilt and lawlessness, blood represents your uncleanness and contamination before God as a sinner who's violated God's law countless thousands of times, the only right thing for a pure and just and holy God to do is to shed your blood. That's what justice is. But that brings us to the one context in which the appearance of blood is good news. Because blood not only represents, but it gives propitiation. It gives the satisfaction of the wrath of God against sinful humans. And this is blood shed on your behalf as a substitute for you. And it's only through the the price of blood that your life can be spared, that your soul can be spared. This is really, this is the heart, this is the core, this is the middle of the idea of atonement. Of covering your sin with the shed blood of another of paying the sin debt owed to God because of our violation of His character and His kindness as as His created beings who belong to Him by means of someone else paying the price for us and thereby fully satisfying the justice of God while fully expressing the grace of God as well. And so because of this really special, unique, saving role of blood, God demands of His people, that they keep blood sacred. They keep blood consecrated, which is a major theme here in Leviticus 17. Now, Leviticus 17 is an important chapter in this book. It basically forms the transition from two major sections of the book, chapters 1 through 16, and then chapters 18 through 27. Different scholars assign chapter 17 to either the first or the second division. I I think the best solution And the easiest is to simply see it as having a foot in both sides. Chapters 1 through 16, as we've seen, basically speak of how to worship. Chapters 18 through 27 basically speak of how to live. Or another way to put that is chapters 1 through 16 speak of sacrifice. And chapters 18 to 27 speak of sanctification. The outline that we had to memorize in seminary was that the first section spoke of the way to God and the second section spoke of the walk with God. And so chapter 17 has a foot in both sides. The first half is still speaking of sacrifice, still keeping the theme from chapter 16 and the Day of Atonement. And the second half is now more concerned with the realm of everyday life. But chapter 17, as you'll see, has very much a warning tone to it. This is, of course, consistent with our theme verse here at Grace Bible Church, Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so tonight, in keeping with the theme of the chapter which is presented to us, I want to emphasize the warning part because the emphasis of our text is clearly serious, particularly around the, the sobriety and the seriousness of blood. So I want to just give you three warnings tonight from our text that we ought to all heed. The first warning, dishonor worship at your own risk. Dishonor worship at your own risk. The first two verses form the introduction to chapter 17. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. And now God gives Israel a specific prohibition, a restriction, a warning. Verse 3, if any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp, 
and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. What does this mean? No animals are to be slaughtered as a sacrifice without bringing them to the tabernacle. Now, this would be very practical while Israel is literally camped all in one place while they're here out in the wilderness. Later on, that restriction is going to be lifted for a time when Israel is much more spread out and we see that restriction lifted in Deuteronomy 12. But for now, at this moment, God is teaching Israel that his tabernacle is unique. It's set apart. It's holy. And if anyone wants to take part in God's holiness, all sacrifices were only to be made there. Sacrifices couldn't be made indifferently. They couldn't be made casually. They couldn't be made individually. You could not be a worshiper of God without being a part of his people. What did God mean? He shall be cut off from among his people. Well, what did the man do? He killed an animal for the purpose of sacrifice, but didn't bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. Didn't make it part of the people's sacrifices. What God meant from being cut off from his people, in fact, it's a warning that appears three times in this chapter, it is speaking of the death penalty. And not at the hands of men, but at the hands of God. How do we know this? How are you going to enforce this law? It's a secret sin which is impossible to prosecute. So this would have terrified a person guilty of this or any secret violation that God himself could strike a person dead if the sin wasn't confessed, if it was covered. What would this look like? This would look like somebody maybe out on the edge of camp with a little altar built and an animal recently dead and this person dead on the ground next to him and nobody knows what happened. But God took him out. They were not to engage in self-styled individualistic worship. In verse 5, this is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. If the sacrifice isn't presented formally, if it isn't presented officially to the Lord, then it becomes odious to God. Verse 6, And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That's the only way it's acceptable. But it also helped safeguard against another tendency of all ancient Near Eastern peoples and the temptation to the very newly formed nation of Israel And that was to take part in pagan worship of false gods. Last time we looked briefly at the idea of goat demons, which are referenced several times in the Old Testament. And here we have it again in verse 7. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. God permitted zero rivalries. Now, these may be Canaanite fertility gods of the countryside. And what would an Israelite maybe be tempted to do? He might be tempted to just offer a quick sacrifice to the goat demons just to cover all the bases in the hopes of a prosperous harvest. A little known fact is that you can go to almost any golf course in the United States on a Monday morning and show them a business card that says you're a pastor. And many of them will let you play for free. You want to know why? And they don't care whether you're a Catholic priest or a Protestant pastor. They're just covering all their bases and they're going to help all the pastors they can. And maybe God will be good to them when they can say, you remember all those free games of golf I gave to some of your guys down there? Well, this is the same thing. The the temptation would be, you know, I'm out here in the field and it doesn't look like much rain is coming. And I have a little altar here and I I have a lamb. I think I'm just going to sacrifice to the goat demons in this area just to make sure, just to cover my bases. But God says no. He says that they are whoring after them. Literally, they are unfaithfuling themselves. If I can create a word. They're being unfaithful. And using it as a verb. And there seems to be an implication that to offer a sacrifice in any fashion, except that which is prescribed by God, is by default to go after false gods meaning you cannot do self-styled worship. 
God reiterates this warning just to make certain they're hearing him well. Verse 8, And you shall say to them, Any one of the house of Israel of the, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. So what is God doing in relation to blood? He's safeguarding blood for true worship only. No self-styled worship. Now, obviously, we aren't under this particular law as we are no longer under that law. We never were, but we're as new covenant believers in Christ. We're not under a sacrificial system. The, The cross has made this law obsolete. But it does almost seem at times that Christians can think that God no longer cares how he's approached. That with the advent of Christ, that God says, I don't care how you come to me now. That the tearing of the veil into the Holy of Holies at the death of Christ meant that now we can waltz into the throne room of God with no concern for propriety or respect or fear or dignity or honor. One pastor said that apparently now in the person of Jesus Christ, God has become a hipster, he's become trendy, and he's finally become relevant enough for us. That God has finally caught up to us. But has God changed? Has the sanctity of worship changed? Has God gone casual now, so to speak? He is not. How can we honor God in worship rather than dishonoring Him in worship at risk to ourselves? This is a massive topic, but I want to just give you a few examples to hopefully make you think in this direction. I want to give you a couple of examples in the realm of corporate worship and in the realm of personal worship. In the realm of corporate worship, our gathering together is the local body of Christ. Let me give you some examples of honoring God. Like Old Testament Israel in the New Covenant Church, there is no place or provision for the Christian to live his faith alone. We honor God by not living our faith alone. We, we don't say, I worship in my house and that's good enough. Like the Israelite who was prohibited from just deciding to self-style worship and self-style sacrifice somewhere other than the sanctuary, we're also called to gather together as God's people. We're not ever called to be alone. And yes, certainly we worship at home. I hope you do. We talk about family worship all the time. But family worship or personal worship is, is never a substitute for the gathering of God's people in the church. It's never meant for that. And as we've said before, a church is more than just some Christians who happen to be in the same room. A church is a gathering of God's people shepherded by qualified men who preach the word of God in the call to obedience to Christ, who ensure the observation of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's table, and who insist on purity within the local body through church discipline when a member willfully continues to rebel and and love a particular sin. We don't do our faith alone. We're to be accountable with and to one another. Let me give you another example in in terms of corporate worship. And this is more to let you into the minds of the thinking of our leadership here. And that concerns what happens up front. What, What happens with those who are standing before you? What are those of us who are leading in any capacity thinking about or should be thinking about? Primarily, our thought is to be about honoring God. Honoring God and trying to avoid anything that places attention on us and takes anything away from the Lord. Can I put it this way? Anybody up front is sort of like the second string quarterback and the coach tells them, look, don't try to win the game. Just don't lose it. Just don't drop the ball. Don't do anything to embarrass yourself or your team. This has countless applications for us. For example, as pastor over worship, Darren works hard to make music, which is God honoring, not aimed at highlighting people, although we love and appreciate the great skill of those involved, but, but doing music which is singable. is singable. I, I've been always a little saddened whenever I'm in a worship service in another church or maybe at a conference where the music that was supposed to be congregational singing is really just a solo performance by a talented singer using his own stylized or unsingable melodies. That's sad to me. That's leaving me out. We think about things like this. We ask that everyone who sets foot on this platform is spiritually prepared. That you don't set foot up here until you've confessed sin. Until you've acknowledged your dependence on God. That you've kept a humble heart to serve you. And we're not serving ourselves. There really should be a sense of trembling. A sense of awe and getting 
to lead in any capacity. There should be a, a, a great sense that getting up on this platform to lead you in any capacity is the most terrifying thing we can do. Because we are, we are offering to represent God? That's terrifying. Here's another example. How about for you, the gathering of God's people? The mature saint who's mindful of honoring God in corporate worship comes, listen to this, with the heart of a participant, not an observer. You come with the heart of a participant, not an observer. Let me put it in terms we can all understand. An observer can be bored at a great sermon and can be critical of fabulous hymns and spiritual songs while a participant gratefully gleans truths from a mediocre sermon and sings heartily the truths of a modestly presented worship song. It all depends on how you walked through the door. An observer gives very little thought to his own heart attitude when coming together. A participant knows that the Lord knows his heart and enters in humility and asking God to speak to his heart during this time. Well, let me give you a couple of examples of honoring God in the realm of your personal worship. Both of them have to do with prayer. The first one, never let prayer be habitually casual and nonchalant. Never let prayer be habitually casual and nonchalant. And yes, I know that the first verse you may want to quote back at me is Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. We are to pray without ceasing. And that obviously necessitates and allows for great spontaneity. If my car is about to careen over a cliff, I'm probably not going to begin my prayer, our Heavenly Father in whom we take great delight. But this should be balanced with a warning also against habitual prayer, which places way more emphasis on thinking about how God is like me instead of how unlike God I am. How did the Lord Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. We begin with formality. That's not a formula. That's an attitude. It's a posture. It's a position. Next time you pray, before you just rush in, stop. Take a breath. Take a moment and prepare your heart to walk through the doors of the throne room of God. Remember, We're invited in Hebrews 4.16 with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Not with casualness draw near to the throne of grace. And there's a difference. Remember to whom you're speaking. You know, even when he was on earth, Jesus' followers never came up to him and said, Hey, Jesus, what's up? They never did that. You know what they did? They often fell down to the ground. They often bowed down. They called him Lord. They called him Master. They called him Rabbi. They called him Teacher. They had great respect. I'll give you another example related to the first. Have you gotten into the habit of confession of sin? Have you gotten into the habit of confession of sin? The free grace movement, which we've been warning about on Sunday mornings, I think has really made some dangerous inroads into the Christian faith to diminish the importance of confession. Because they teach that once salvation is accomplished, confession is never again necessary. And I've heard them say this with my own ears. Don't ever confess your sin once you've done it once. You never have to do it again your whole life. Certainly we don't confess for salvation, but it is necessary for holiness and communion with God. We looked at that extensively this morning. God knew how prone to idolatry the Israelites were as this first section of Leviticus 17 emphasizes this. You ever read about the propensity of the Israelites to idolatry and go, well, I would never do that. We're exactly the same. We just live in a different culture. Why would we think we're different? We're, we're magnetically attracted to idolatry of all sorts in the form of selfishness and pride and anger and laziness and lust and greed. We're surrounded by the goat demons of our world and our flesh. They're just different and they're just more sparkly. 1 John 1, 9, confess your sins to God. James 5, 16, confess your sins to each other. It's so important, so vital. Those are just examples that that God is vitally concerned with how he is approached. And he will be approached only his way and with the proper honor and respect. The first warning, dishonor worship at your own risk. The second warning we could find in our text, dishonor atonement at your own risk. Dishonor atonement at your own risk. 
Why is worship not to be self-styled? Because it involves atonement. Verse 10. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood. Neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. So now we have a second restriction. Blood had to be drained before consuming an animal. We've already seen this both in Leviticus 3 and in Leviticus 7. But look how sacred blood was to be considered. Even animal blood. Verse 13, Any one also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. Blood was to be buried. Why? Verse 14, again, for the life of every creature is in its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. What do you do with a a person or even a beloved pet that dies? What do we do? We, we bury it, right? We bury the body. Even blood that is poured out on the ground from a dead animal is to be buried because that was that animal's life. God even gives what some have called roadkill regulations. I'm not making that up. Verse 15, And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening, Then he shall be clean, but if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. In other words, uncleanness now turns to sin. Now, the law doesn't strictly prohibit eating meat from a dead animal that's found, but it will make him unclean, and purity rituals now have to be observed. Now, there's no doubt, just to put this this question down here, there's no doubt that these restrictions likely had some health benefits, But to proclaim physical health as the primary reason for these restrictions makes a couple of mistakes. First of all, it's to read something into the text that's not there. And secondly, it's to miss the spiritual significance of all of this. The spiritual significance is that the only use of blood is for sacrifice to the Lord who is the giver of life. The only use of blood is for sacrifice. And as we've already seen, yes, blood is a sign of mortal life and death, a sign of guilt and lawlessness, of uncleanness and contamination. But because life is at its core represented by blood, God has assigned for blood for atonement and for atonement only. And atonement is only received by faith by means of shed blood. So to eat blood, it denigrated life, it degraded the sacred importance of the blood related to atonement, Eating blood made that which God intended for one purpose, for a holy purpose. It made it common. It made it profane. And so by keeping blood sacred and set apart now, every time the worshiper presents a sacrifice and sees blood, the person is confronted with the fact that loss of life was necessary for atonement. He's confronted with the fact that the wages of sin is death. Or if I could put it this way, they were never to be desensitized by blood. It was never to be normal for them. It was to be only a reminder that they are sinners who need atonement. Now here's an interesting thought to consider. This prohibition against blood is here in the law of Moses, but it's not restricted to the law of Moses. This same prohibition happened long before Moses and at least a strong suggestion long after Moses. All the way back in Genesis 9, God commanded Noah in verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And then we would note in Acts chapter 15 in the New Testament, the apostles were called upon to deal with a massive division that was happening in the church. Jewish believers were teaching Gentile Christians that unless they followed the law of Moses, they couldn't be saved. And so these Jewish believers teaching this, by the way, they were saved Pharisees. They're still kind of clinging to that legalism that they're familiar with. 
And so the, the, the apostles gathered to consider this question, and after some debate, they came to a consensus, and they wrote a letter to the Gentile believers, and here's their instruction with a, with a pleasant tone of fatherly advice. Acts 15, beginning in verse 28, this is their letter. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. So why do they encourage the Gentile Christians to stay away from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood? Well, very simply, because that would be terribly offensive to the Jewish believers in their midst. And so he's basically saying, do this for the sake of conscience. Don't cause unnecessary tension. So where does that leave us today? Is this a little known rule for Christian living which just slipped through unnoticed? Are you thinking, man, I had a rare steak last night. Am I in trouble here? There are many recipes today which call for blood. Blood soup made out of duck, goose, or even pig blood. In Finland and Sweden, they make pancakes out of pig's blood. Almost every major culture has traditional dishes which have blood as the main ingredient. So what does the restriction going all the way back to Genesis 9, what does that mean for us? God gave the reason to Noah that he and his family, and by extension humanity, were not to consume blood because life is in the blood. In Leviticus, they were not to consume blood because life is in the blood and it's reserved for atonement. And in Acts, the Gentiles were highly encouraged to not consume blood for the sake of their Jewish brothers who were so adamant about this issue. And, and for them, it would have been grotesque. It would have been offensive. And so in the situation in Acts, for example, maybe it wasn't technically wrong, but it just wouldn't be wise. It wouldn't be beneficial. It wouldn't be necessary. Or as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians six twelve, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. So I don't think we can make a strong case that the Christian in the New Covenant context is strictly, absolutely prohibited from consuming blood. But I would stop to emphasize that in Scripture, God considers blood very sacred and quite important as it is set apart for atonement. And so for the sake of that principle, it's certainly reasonable to consider your own position on this without insisting on the law for others. But perhaps here's the bigger question to ask yourself. Is there anything in the same idea of eating or consuming blood? Is there anything else which lowers or waters down or desensitizes my view of atonement? Remembering that blood must be shed for my right standing before God. I actually think that the church in America can be extremely guilty of dishonoring atonement in some ways that might even surprise you. So how do we safeguard the sanctity of atonement? How do we do that? I'm just going to give you four suggestions. There's a, there's a bunch of ways, but this is from the standpoint of the church. And these are not new to you, but it's imperative that we repeat the truth so that we remember the truth. The first way we safeguard the sanctity of atonement is always honor the biblical gospel. Always honor the biblical gospel Changing the gospel to a gospel of Jesus as simply being my friend dishonors atonement. Jesus is your savior because he first bled the blood of the perfect son of God for you. We're never to forget that the shed blood of Jesus is not just a theological idea. His arteries and his veins were opened by violence and with tremendous pain. And so the gospel must include blood. It must include the pain of the cross. It must include the anguish of the fact that he's up there instead of me. Here's another way to safeguard atonement. One that might surprise you. Discipline yourself to come to worship as an act of gratitude. Discipline yourself to come to worship as an act of gratitude. Corporate worship is not a show put on for your entertainment. It's an act of thanks. It's an act of contrition. It's an act of humility because of the blood of Christ. And I think thinking on atonement, thinking about the blood of Christ would really change the entire way you think about and the way you prepare for worship. And listen, if you've learned anything, particularly from Exodus and from Leviticus, as we've gone through this on Sunday nights, I hope that it's that coming to God for worship is something that the faithful prepare for. 
There is a preparation of heart. They prepare hearts. They prepare their minds. They prepare their bodies. They prepare their offerings. It's not something done spontaneously. Rarely in Scripture is worship spontaneous unless it's a a sudden exclamation of gratitude. Speaking of offerings, here's another way we safeguard atonement. Another one which might surprise you. The church must preach on giving. The church must preach on giving. Now, what does that have to do with atonement? Never preaching on giving dishonors atonement. Pastors become afraid of what people will think if they preach on giving. I'm so glad that Jesus wasn't afraid of what people thought as he was bleeding on the cross and struggling for breath as his joints were being dislocated. I'm, I'm glad he wasn't too embarrassed to die for me. But giving is a vital part of our expression of thanks. We give to the Lord's work financially, sacrificially, because we're proclaiming something. We're proclaiming our remembrance that Jesus gave infinitely more. His blood was spilled for us. He he didn't write a check. He didn't do nice things for us. He literally died a horrible, cruel death in your place. And I would say this to you. I would say this to myself. I would say this to any Christian How you give says a lot about what you think of atonement. It says a lot. One more way we might guard atonement. We are to beware of making the focus of the church the mystical, the bizarre, and the emotional. We're to beware of making the focus of the church the mystical, the bizarre, and the emotional. I saw a video just the other day. It was emailed to me of a Pentecostal church that had all kinds of instruments going just on one chord and just kind of doing this rumbling chord with the drums going and and people in the church just in this trance wandering around and spinning around and and just in this deep yearning for something mystical. The only reason the video was sent to me because one guy who was spinning got so dizzy that he ran into a pole. And so I found that amusing. But on a more serious note, I spoke recently to a fellow pastor who had been invited to be a guest speaker in another church. I asked him how the experience was, and he said it was disturbing. He, he was uncomfortable with it. And what was disturbing was that what they did was they spent over 45 minutes in what they called music worship, but the clear intention was a systematic building of emotion and amping up excitement to the point it had a hypnotic effect on the crowd as a whole because that's what they were coming for. That's what they were coming to look for. And then a pastor could come up and say anything and people would believe him because the music wasn't building them up spiritually. All it was was escalating emotion and making them open to suggestion. Social psychologists have known that for years. It's called group hypnosis. And the pastor was disturbed by that. What does that have to do with atonement? How amped up and excited and jumping around and acting ridiculous are you supposed to be when you sing, Nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. It makes me thankful. It doesn't make me jump around in celebration. The crimson stain is because of me. What a sobering truth. It was my sin that pierced the hands and the feet of Christ. In reality, the direction that a church heads, the emphasis that it has, should all center around atonement. All around blood. But there's another consideration, a more important one, which really transcends the simple issue of consuming blood. And that brings us to our third warning concerning how we interact with God. First warning, dishonor worship at your own risk. Second, dishonor atonement at your own risk. Third warning, dishonor Christ at your own risk. And we'll move beyond this text now. Dishonor Christ at your own risk. We're now partakers of the new covenant. And sanctity of blood is still observed. It's just observed in a different fashion. Under the law as prescribed and presented in Leviticus and even back to Genesis, people are prohibited from eating or drinking blood because it's reserved solely for atonement. But in the New Testament, with the coming of Christ, listen to this command. And no wonder this was confusing to people. 
Jesus himself said in John 6, beginning of verse 53, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks his blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus' blood is for atonement. An atonement which lasts forever and never needs to be repeated. Now, this is clearly figurative language. No one actually drinks the blood of Jesus. But it makes a very definite statement that the true believer must receive the life of Christ into himself. Remember, we've seen all through the scripture that life is in the blood. And Jesus said, you must drink in my life. There is no partially being a Christian. There is no trying out Christ. The life of Christ voluntarily offered as a sacrifice for us is transferred to us. We had the privilege of receiving the Lord's table this morning and I was reminded of the Apostle Paul having to make this course correction for the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11. They had turned the Lord's Supper into a common meal and apparently had very little regard for what the bread and the cup represented, the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so consequently, they were taking the Lord's table, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, in an unworthy manner. They were taking the symbol of grace and mercy of God and offering Jesus Christ as a sacrifice in their place. And they were, they were spitting on that grace and mercy by despising one another and treating people even in, in the church badly. And what happened to someone who defiled even the representation of the blood of Christ? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. See also Leviticus 17 cut off from your people. The shedding of blood is important and if I had time we would look into the book of Hebrews also that speaks of those unbelievers who defile the blood of Christ by their refusal of the gospel, and their fate is obviously infinitely worse. We would say the believers in 1 Corinthians 11 are believers. They're just being disciplined. They're cut off from their people on this earth and taken to heaven because they dishonored the blood of Christ. How honorable is the blood of Christ? I just want to give you a little list. What has the shedding of the blood of Christ done for you? What has it done for you? Very quickly, first of all, we're brought near to God. We're brought near to God, Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. Hebrews 10.19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So we're brought near to God. Here's another benefit. We're permanently in God's good graces. We're permanently in God's good graces Hebrews 13, 20, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Mosaic covenant was temporary. New covenant is forever. So we're brought near to God. We're permanently in God's graces. Also, we're in the blessing of God. You are in the middle of the blessing of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? It is a blessing. We're brought near to God. We're permanently in God's good graces. We're in the blessing of God. There's a fourth benefit. We're truly cleansed of all sin. Truly cleansed of all sin. First John 1, 7, very familiar to you. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from how much? All sin. All of it. There's a fifth benefit. We're purchased for God. We're purchased for God. Ephesians 1, 7. In Him we have redemption. That's our purchase through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. We're brought near to God. We're permanently in God's good graces. We're in the blessing of God. We're cleansed of all sin. We're purchased for God. Here's another benefit. We're purified in conscience. Your conscience can be purified. We talked about that this morning. Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What a great thing to know we can stand pure before a holy God. 
One more benefit. We're loved by Christ through his blood. That is the means, that is the conduit, that is the, the medium of the blood of, uh, of the love of Christ. Revelation 1, five. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He loves us by his blood. These are tremendous benefits. We're brought near the God. We're permanently in God's good graces. We're in the blessing of God. We're truly cleansed of all sin. We're purchased for God. We're purified in conscience. We're loved by Christ through his blood. So I think we would agree with the Apostle Peter when he said in 1 Peter 1 that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. It is precious to us. And so the theme color of the Bible certainly is red. The blood of atonement most fully fulfilled in Christ. But with the red blood of atonement, the green of creation is lovely because we are new creations in Christ and he will restore all things into a new heavens and a new earth. The blue for mankind living under God's sky We will never again feel the guilt of sin as being those that brought sin into the world. The purple for the royalty of God and Christ. Now in Christ, we're part of the royal family. We're fellow heirs with Christ who will reign with him. The white for the holiness of God. We've been made holy, able to stand now in the presence of God. That as God said in Isaiah 1, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And the yellow for the streets of gold of God's heavenly city. We've been qualified We've been qualified to enter his kingdom and his city. Why? Because of the red atoning blood of Christ. And so Leviticus 17 just points us absolutely laser beam at the cross. Does it not? It does. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks this evening for Leviticus 17 that as new covenant believers who have the great benefit and the great privilege of a finished revelation, a finished Bible. We read through Leviticus 17 and the admonitions about blood and we're eager, we're, we're eager to run ahead to the cross and, and point out if the blood of even just an animal that is killed for a sacrifice is to be set apart, is to be made holy, how much more is the blood of Jesus? which the Apostle Peter rightly said is precious blood, the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, spotless and clean. And so, Lord, for all of us here this evening, I pray that we would reconsider our position on the atonement, that we would have a greater seriousness and weightiness and gravitas to what we think about when we consider Christ on the cross, when we consider the very blood of the Savior that was shed for us. Might it impact how we come to you even in our personal prayer? Might it impact how we open our Bibles? Might it impact how we gather together to worship, to remember the great and terrible cost that was paid by Christ so that we might gather as your people for all eternity. Give us a proper view of the atonement, Lord, so that we might be worshipers pleasing to you. And we pray for Christ's sake and for his honor and glory. Amen.